Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. As always, I'm your host, Alan Seals. And as always, I'm your producer, Jillian Hockman. Yes, please. Woohoo! This episode episode is with Diana Salome and Eric Piepenberg, who work at Sereno Coin. What is Sereno Coin? It's a marketing agency. What's a marketing agency do? Well, listen to the episode, and maybe you can tell me, because I'm not sure I still know what it does. It's, It's a little confusing, a little complicated but ultimately they are the people that get the advertising and the marketing and the brand of the show out so people want to come see it. Well, the reason it's confusing now, and I say now as in the the age of digital and internet, is because the line is so blurred between marketing and press and media agencies and whether you're trying to get an individual person or get a whole show like a cast or get something put in print or buy an ad like everybody sort of does everything now now that the internet has brought it all together whereas 20 years ago there were very clear defining mm-hmm. boundaries um but Diana makes a really great point that it every show is different and every brand is different and so what works for one show might not work for something else so it's kind of all big one melting pot that as long as you know about it and as long as you want to see this show they're doing their jobs right yeah You were saying this is an example of more theater jobs, more Broadway jobs that you didn't know existed. Yeah, I really like that there are options for if you're not a performer, if you're not a creative. I myself, I'm very much business oriented. That's why I like producing the podcast. Uh, So I love hearing stories about all the things that you can still be a part of this community and you can go to all the events. You can help make the events. Uh, There's an option for everybody. It's really great to hear that there's a world outside of the stage. Yeah, there is a big world um, in the world of publicity, in the world of marketing, in the world of of digital ad buys. I mean, you, you can be involved with the industry, and there are so many opportunities outside of directly being on stage or in the theater. It gives you a chance that no matter how you love theater, you can still be a part of it, and that's my favorite thing. Yeah. I Did you catch, remember, that Eric said um, that he was one of the first people involved with MSNBC when they yeah. created it in the late 90s? That's so, like, Eric, you look so young. You look amazing. I want to know what moisturizer you use. <laughs> well, he would tell you. Uh, so everybody, please visit us online at ttp.fm. We got a little uh, short link for you, so you don't have to type in the theaterpodcast.com every time. ttp.fm slash Patreon. Show your support. And at the minimum $5 tier, you can get advance notice of who we're interviewing so that you can submit your questions. What do you want to know? What do you want to know? The people we're going to interview. Of course, follow us online at social media, theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And everybody, please enjoy this episode with Eric Piepenberg and Diana Salome. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with two of my favorite people, Diana Salome and Eric Piepenberg, who I both know through an amazing marketing agency here in New York City called Sereno Coin. Diana is currently the Director of Marketing and Communications with almost an eight-year history at the company, and Eric is a former senior editor at the New York Times who now holds the position of features editor here at Sereno. We will get into what all of those titles mean and how they relate to Broadway and theater since I'm not even sure I know what they mean yet, but Diana and Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank so you. excited to be here. That was like very delayed. You're like, do I talk now? <laughs> uh, so I guess, yeah, let's start out real quick. Diana, what is a director of marketing and communications? Well, it's a it's a broad title. It's a title that I think a lot of people in the marketing industry at large have. But let me tell you what that means at Sereno Coin. I am in a dual role. I do two very different things at Sereno Coin that I think flex a lot of the same muscles. So the first half of my job where my 10,000 hours are are in partnership marketing. And so how do we bring brands together? How do we create experiences that are reflective of the shows that we're working on and that we're tying in people with similar values? So to give you an example of what that looks like, that could look like Beautiful, the Carol King musical, mm-hmm. partnering with a brand like Anthropology. We know that both brands have similar audiences, that they have a similar aesthetic, that they're both trying to similarly say that whoever you are, woman, whatever you look like, wherever you come from, you're beautiful. And so working together with those two brands to tell a story in a variety of different ways, that's where the bulk of my work and the bulk of my history is. So how do you know that they're trying to tell the same story, though? You do a lot of listening. You talk to a lot of people, a lot of brands that you think are interesting, and I would say you do a lot of listening, and then you marry that with all the information that you have about the shows that you work on or the brands that you represent. So, and you're you're exclusively uh, theater inside the company, or do you do more than that, like Broadway and theater? I would say that Serena Coin is primarily theater, theater based in New York, Broadway at large, but we handle other properties that are live entertainment brands that care about storytelling, that are ticketed events. So some examples of that include One World Observatory, which is a theatrical experience onto itself, which is a ticketed event, which is something that you experience as a community when you go and do that. It's not something that you do, you know, alone on your couch watching Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on on Netflix, (laughs) Um, on Amazon Prime. I'm sorry. Sorry, Netflix. Sorry, Amazon Prime. Um, And that's what makes it something that we know how to market in a really special way. Interesting. All right, so Eric, then, what is a features editor? Features editor is a little bit of an unusual title out of an advertising agency because what it does is marry the worlds of journalism and advertising. And I think that you're going to be seeing more of this happen as, unfortunately, newsrooms continue to shrink, especially when it comes to arts coverage across the country. You're going to see a lot of journalists who still want to write, who still want to be reporters, who want to be editors, but they're going into um, somewhat adjacent fields. And so what that means on a very practical level is since joining Sereno almost a year and a half ago, I've written an advertorial for uh, Frozen, for The New Yorker, and I've hosted a panel discussion with uh, cast members from Head Over Heels. And those are things that I did at the New York Times. It's just that now I'm doing it for uh, particular uh, clients, in this case, Broadway shows. It, so does that does that answer my next question of what is a feature then? Sure. I, I, I guess, so you're a feature editor, you edit the features. The features are the events or the features are paper publications or digital paper publications? 
Yes, all of those. Mm -hmm. uh, it basically <laughs> means uh, in, in journalism today, at, at the times, I was what sort of this new brand of journalist, which is you are a reporter, you're a writer, you're an editor. In my case, I also produced videos and hosted live events, and I hosted a concert, and I did a, a Times Talks. So you kind of have to do a little bit of everything. And so here, it's kind of the same thing. It's it's printed uh, content. It's um, live events. It's a panel discussion. It's kind of the, the same breadth that you need as a journalist today, just in this world of Broadway. That, I'm trying to process all of this because it sounds like you could, I mean, I'm not to diminish it, but it sounds kind of like, a, like an event coordinator that also is really good at communicating in written form. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really hard. A, A, events is hard. B, writing is hard. And C, writing effectively is hard. Uh, so was this something that Serena was looking for specifically? Or did you just kind of come to them and you're like, hey, guys, look at what this cool thing I can do for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I decided to, to leave the Times, um, I talked to some very smart people uh, that I'd gotten to know over the years. Uh, and to a person, they said that I would be great in the advertising slash marketing world, which if you told me that when I was uh, a journalist, I would have said, you are crazy because there's such a, a church-state divide between journalism and advertising. Those are just two different worlds. But when several people tell you, hey, your skills at the Times would translate really well into advertising, um, all paths led to uh, Serena Coin. Hmm. Um, and look, maybe this can explain it uh, in a way that, that makes sense. At the end of the day, journalists and advertisers are storytellers. What journalists do is we say, hey, pay attention to this show, to this actor, to this composer, designer, whatever, because we think you're going to be interested in it, and you might want to buy a ticket. Advertisers do the same thing. We say, hey, pay attention to this musical, to this director, to this actor. We think you're really going to enjoy it, and we really want you to buy a ticket. I think that's that's the biggest divide between the two types of storytelling. Journalists aren't concerned over whether you buy a ticket or not. That's that's not their, their job. It sort of ends there. Um, advertisers want you to buy a ticket. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're telling stories about uh, theater in this case. Maybe we sort of answer to different audiences in some way, but at the end of the day, it's about telling stories theater goers and those outside of that world, hey, we think you're gonna like this the show. That's really that's really fascinating to me. I I had someone the other day tell me that um I forget I actually forget who this was. So if you're listening, sorry if I'm misquoting you here, but someone said that if I had known that uh, being a, a Broadway press agent was a career, then they wouldn't be doing whatever the, it is that they're doing now. So I, that kind of leads me to my next question, I guess, is, is you know, take me back to the very beginning. And I guess, A, how did you both get into theater? And then how did you get into the advertising and marketing world? Well, for me, I got into theater from a very young age. I was, I don't even remember the first time I was exposed to musical theater or to Broadway, but it feels like it was the beginning of time. And my sister had a lot to do with that. My sister used to take me to see everything on Broadway growing up. I grew up in New Jersey. It was really easy to come to the theater. And so I did. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the storytelling. I fell in love with the connection with humans on stage, with stories that I had never heard before but wanted to hear. I loved the music. I loved tap dancing. All of it. You put all of that together and it was a dream for me. 
I never thought it was something that I was going to be able to do as a career because I didn't know, similar to your friend who told you if they knew that a Broadway press agent was a, was a job, they would have been doing that. I had no idea. And I knew that a life on stage was not what I was destined to do, um, despite my wonderful track record of being in high school musicals, which looking back in retrospect, it was really terrible at all of them. <laughs> um, but I loved it a lot and I gained a lot of confidence from that. But that's for a whole nother podcast and a whole nother story. Um, I stumbled upon this as a career by accident. So I assumed I should be a teacher. It just felt like I was flexing some skills that I had by being a teacher. And I spent a lot of time in college. I was a, a dual major in English and education, working towards a path of being a teacher and thinking maybe if I was really lucky, I'd get to direct the spring musical at whatever high school I worked at. And I'd, I'd teach drama and all would be great. And that's how my life would go. And then one summer, I met somebody who had interned at Sereno Coin, and she just talked about how much she loved it. And a couple years later, when I was having this reckoning that maybe I shouldn't be a teacher, I remembered Sereno Coin. And I called in May to ask if they had any internships for June. I left a message with HR, and they called me back, and it was a, a moment of serendipity. She said I had two voicemails when I checked, one from somebody in our summer internship backing out, from the program and one from you saying that you were interested in the program. So she oh, wow. called me immediately. I ended up here. I met Nancy Coyne, our founder. And at the time she was our CEO on the first day within the first 30 minutes. And I said, this is it. This is what I should be doing with my life. And and here I am almost eight years after working here. How, how old was that then? Or how old were you then? I was 21. I was going into my second senior year in college, um, which is what happens when you have no direction in college, um, <laughs> which was fine. And um, so I was 21 years old. And so that um, actually 10 years ago this June was the first time I stepped into the halls at Sereno Coin. Wow. And the company's been around since 77, right? Yeah. Founded yeah. in 1977 by a woman, by Nancy Coyne, I think is pretty remarkable. At the time in 1977, women, white women, mm -hmm. were making 50 cents on the dollar for what a man was making. And Nancy started this agency. And I feel like that's been a part of our DNA. It's woven into everything that I do here. Um, and so it makes me feel very proud to work at an agency that was founded by a woman, led by a woman. Nancy will tell you that the best way to break the glass ceiling is to start a company that doesn't have one. Um, and so I've been very proud to be a part of that and to have it all fueled by theater, this thing I love and have felt so connected to my whole life is just icing on top of the cake. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. I, I actually want to get into the the activism and that you stand behind in a, in a little bit. But Eric, let's hear your story first about your your beginnings in theater and whatnot. Sure. So there's a little bit of an anniversary for me uh, this month, actually. Uh, 30 years ago, I had a star-making turn as Tevia in my high school's production of Fiddler on the Roof. So you can do the math and figure out how old I am right now. Uh, so it was 30 years ago at uh, Lutheran West High School in Rocky River, Ohio. Um, and that was fantastic. I just knew that I wasn't going to pursue this as a as a career, so I sort of let that go for uh, a while. Went to um, school at DePaul University in Chicago. Went to grad school at American University in Washington, and I wanted to run a film festival. That's what I really wanted to do. Um, but one day, I got a call from an old boss of mine at WMAQ, the NBC station in Chicago, and she said to me, "I know this sounds weird." But just, just hear me out. We're starting this thing called MSNBC.com. And 
we're guessing that people are going to want to go to the internet for news. Whoa. If you'd like a job, we would love to have you move back to Chicago. I was living in D.C. at the time. Move back to Chicago. We're just going to see how this goes. And so I, I did, and that was my first job in, in journalism, in, in digital journalism uh, specifically, was in 1996, when, as we all know, it took two hours for a photo to mm-hmm. download and five hours for the homepage to be updated. And um, I spent about five years there, uh, moved to uh, New York, worked at a company called The Feed Room. And then one day I saw an, uh, an ad for a job at the uh, New York Times, uh, .com. In, uh, for the overnight shift, the midnight to 8 a.m. shift. Mm. And it sounded awful to me, but I was, I thought, you know, let's just try this. It's the New York Times. It sounds like a really cool place to work. So I applied and uh, I got the job. And I worked the midnight to 8 a.m. shift, the death and destruction shift, the suicide bombings in the Middle East, just like awful, awful stuff for about a year and a half uh, when the Times uh, created theater as its own section. And I sure enough raised my hand and I said, I'd love to work during the day. (laughs) Uh, I'm a theater queen, so I can uh, cover theater. And I was there for about 15, about 14 years covering, covering theater mostly. That's crazy. So was Tevye the only thing that you had done in high school? No, I was Nathan Detroit. Uh, in Guys and Dolls, I was um, Mr. Frank in the Diary of Anne Frank. I actually directed a Sam Shepard one act, weirdly, in my Christian high school, which it was just, it was sort of strange. But uh, and I, I, I bet, Diana, you had this too. And I had a, a uh, my English teacher, Marty Muth, who sadly has passed away, but she changed my life when she gave me a play uh, when I was 16 called The Normal Heart. And she said, you should read this. And her interest in me as, she probably knew I was gay before I even knew that I was gay by giving me that play just sparked such a love of theater. And she really changed my changed my life. And I think everyone who has been in the theater in some way just has that one person who made such a difference. And when I look back, I think, yeah, that that person and that moment really just sparked in me this, this love of theater. And though I'm not on stage, I'm so I was you know a, a writer covering it as a as a writer for many years and now I'm in advertising, but it's all part of the same family that was sparked by this one person. Wow. Do do you think? Uh, how do I want to phrase this? Uh, the the generation coming up now that is into theater and of course like in middle school or le- you know elementary school has instagram and facebook and whatnot and it is much more connected i didn't have broadband till i in 98 when i went to college and all this stuff you said you're 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 this person knew you were gay before you knew you were gay do you think that kids now are i put in air quotes realizing that they are gay at a much earlier age because the knowledge is being shared in forums like podcasts and journalism and, you know, they have it on their phones all the time now. Yeah, there's no question about it that kids are coming out earlier and earlier. And just to to, to think about that blows my mind because when I was growing up in, in the 80s in Cleveland, just being out wasn't – and at a Christian school, which wasn't exactly the most gay-friendly place – um, as as many mem- good memories as I have of, of high school, it wasn't a place where you could be out. It just blows my mind that kids are coming out in fifth, sixth grade, even younger. Um, and I think it's because, obviously, the internet, but it's also um, not a big deal anymore. And I just I keep thinking of Pete Buttigieg and introducing his husband on stage. And for kids who have come out at this young age, that's, that's just expected. But for my generation, Generation X— Gay men, it's still like what th- this is not 
happening. And thank God it is, but it hasn't quite landed that we're living in this in this such a wonderfully gay world. Not that it's great. You go back to you know parts of Ohio, and it's not so great mm-hmm. um, to be gay, and you know certainly um, with people of color even more so. But I, I I can't wrap my head around that there are probably kids in my high school today, maybe who might be out to their friends, which I. I can't imagine what that was like. Yeah, I didn't have anybody in my high school who was out. And I there were several people that after college came out to me and I was like, "Well, yeah. Like we knew before you knew or you know m- maybe maybe they knew and they just, you know, weren't out." But Yeah. What what do you think the role of of advertising plays in in this as well because I was having this conversation the other day with somebody that uh the the behavior like you said, you see someone on stage or you see someone on TV like this is I'm a man, this is my husband. It's just commonplace. It's just there. But everything that's modeled, what we see, you know, sexy, your average newsstands or your newspapers in the checkout lines are men and women and or like sexy women catering to men and whatnot. Like advertising is is sort of holding us back in this case, don't you think? Yeah, and you you actually just said it. You said sexy women catering to men. What I think you meant was traditionally sexy women catering to men. And I think that's an important distinction. And I think advertising at large has a role, an obligation, a need, an, an economic driver to show people that look like the people that are gonna buy their products, that are gonna engage with their products, that you don't have to be a size two to shave your legs. So why does every ad for shaving cream and razors feature a woman who is a size two? That boggles my mind. And I think when we talk about advertising for theater and for live entertainment and for Broadway specifically, we need to represent what's happening on stage because I am seeing a shifting tide in what's represented on stage. And I want that to be so blatantly obvious in advertising. I mean, this season alone, we have Heidi Schreck and what the Constitution means to me. Mm -hmm. And for me, it is just as powerful to see her face on half the page of the New York Times boldly looking towards the future as it is to see the words that incredible people wrote about her. You know, when we talk about Hamilton, what's been so extraordinary about Hamilton is the intersectionality of of diversity that they've shown on stage. When we look at Head Over Heels that opened last season and we saw body diversity and Bonnie Milligan playing a plus-size princess who never spoke about her weight, I want to see that in my advertising because there's a little girl in New Jersey, just like me, and there's a young boy in Ohio, just like Eric, <laughs> who is, is, is dying to see themselves represented in, in art, in things that they're going to put their money towards, in, in the world saying, you're sexy too, you're beautiful too, and your story deserves to be heard. Yeah. Yeah, Brandon Uranowitz uh, said that too, that this is in Burn This Now. This is the first time he's played an openly gay character on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And he, he, I quoted him in, online. I said that, uh, or he said, until young gay men can see themselves playing themselves, there's always going to be a problem. And that applies across the board, like you said, to people of color and to women. And yeah, like starting this company, Serena Coin, in the 70s, when a white woman, w- 
oh, gosh, I can't imagine what she went through to get this company going. I know. And you've got to talk to her about that because it's her, st- it's, it's her story to tell. But I think that anybody who's ever been marginalized, anybody who's ever been put in a box knows how to fight their way out of a box. And that's the incredible thing about resilience. And we see those stories on stage all of the time. Mm-hmm. And I want to see more and more of those stories on stage of how do you break out of what the world has told you you should be or the place that the world has told you that you should sit. Yeah. Yeah, the the Head Over Heels, the, the show was so life-changing to me as well. And, you know, I enjoyed, we, I've interviewed Bonnie on this podcast and we talked about being a plus-size woman and, and you know, what it meant to her to play this role. And, and like, um, it was, it featured the first, the show also had the first character who identified as non-binary in a show, which mm-hmm. when I watched it, I, I like being in New York, I think I've kind of in a good way become desensitized to the the bigotry that exists outside of the city. Um, so I saw it and I said, oh, this is really cool. Like mm-hmm. that character is just non-binary. I think that's fine. But then I, I got to thinking about it and it probably got so many people riled up in a way that they're not comfortable with. And then talking with people from the prom too, sort of the same thing. And from a marketing perspective, think about the prom when you're like, okay, what's the show about? Oh, it's about two lesbians. Okay, so that shuts people down, mm-hmm. some people down immediately. So they have to think about, you, know, you want to be truthful to the show, but still sell tickets mm-hmm. without offending people. Mm-hmm. You're sitting here smiling at me. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I think all I think all of that is true. And what you want is for everyone to have an open mind. And the fact of the matter is that not everybody does. So part of it is, can we get you in the theater enough that your mind is simply going to open on its own just by seeing what's on stage? Uh, I think there's a possibility, and I think music and, and art and storytelling has a really special way of doing that and igniting that in people. So I hope that theater can continue to do that. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I I enjoy, I enjoy when I go go to a, a a show and it I just leave and I can't stop thinking about. Well, you know, if you if you leave singing the music, great, you know, because mm-hmm. that's part of part of what'll make the show successful. Yeah. But when you think about the the message behind it, like I still think about Head Over Heels. Gosh, I'm it closed too early because I think people just they weren't ready yet. Yeah, I hope we you will. Know? I hope we'll see a lot more of it. But I also will say on the on the topic of, of head over heels, not to hijack your conversation. Oh, no. But Forever. speaking of young boys in Ohio and their dreams, I, I hope Eric can tell you the story about his connection to head over heels and then the miraculous moment that happened in the process of working on it. Oh, sure. Just quickly. I was a mega, <laughs> a mega Go-Go's fan in the early 80s, 84, 85. I saw all their concert tours. I was just completely obsessed. I made a, a, a one of those trucker, like trucker hats and I gated up with all my Go-Go's buttons and I decals it to the Go-Go's. I was utterly obsessed. So, of course, when I realized that we were going to be working with the Go-Go's, I was just so excited. And sure enough, it was a, a meet and greet or it was some sort of event and most of the Go-Go's were there. Uh, and I got to meet them even just just briefly and got a picture with Belinda Carlisle, who I was obsessed with when I was uh, in eighth grade. And it was just one of those moments that um, all, all my worlds came together. Theater, 
little gay boy, my go-go's hat, uh, <laughs> it all just came together and it was it was a very memorable night. There's a great photo and Eric has like the twinkle of a 13-year-old boy in his eyes in that photo. Um, it was one of my favorite moments of, of last year. That's so much fun. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I love, I wish I could have seen that. Um, just seeing you react to that, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like going off my own world now, picturing like yeah. little, little yeah. Eric hanging it's, out with the Go-Go's. Oh, and I had yeah. my Go-Go's concert t-shirt on from 1984. <laughs> so I, I, I wore that t-shirt and a blazer and it was it, it was still a, fit. I mean, kudos still, to you. Sort of fit a little snug, but yeah. it, it fit. Sometimes yeah. we'd see your belly button, but it was fine. <laughs> it, was, it worked. <laughs> so I want to go back to uh, to your roles real quick. And, and Serena Coyne, I... You, you, Serena Coin is a marketing agency, right? They deal with, they develop a story, you develop a brand. That is different from a press agency, yes? Yeah. So what is the difference between press and marketing? Because there are plenty of both. I would say that in, in 2019, it falls into a very gray area of what all of that means. And Eric is the perfect representation of that, what the difference is. And I like to think about it. Somebody once told me the term modern marketing. Best idea wins, right? It doesn't matter if that's a that's a full-page ad in the New York Times or if that's a story in the New Yorker or if that's an event for Beautiful at Anthropology. Best idea wins. And so I think you've been a great demonstrator, Eric, of how those worlds come together. Yeah, I, I I think that's true. I think that they're sort of blending uh, in unusual ways. But I, I there, look, there's also a divide in the sense that if, if you want to pitch a story for the New York Times, you go to the press agent, you're not going to go to Serena Coyne, you're going to go to the, the, the press person for that, for that show. Um, so on a very practical level, sure, there are those differences, but the ways in which we talk about the show are, are blending in ways that now that I'm on this side of, of the industry, I I hadn't realized they're actually there. And then there's the difference too between traditional marketing and traditional press, I guess, and and digital. And you've got companies like uh, like Situation Interactive that they're exclusively digital. Mm-hmm. And it seems like everybody just kind of, to me, uh, as as a, a non advertising civilian, I'll call myself. I've I've been involved with this business for years now. And I'm still asking these questions of people. And I, you just gave me an answer, and I still don't get it. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I, whether I want a show or a person or a print ad or, a, or a, an ad in Playbill or an ad on a website, like, it just, there's so many opportunities for people who want to be involved with theater who, and, and without having to be on stage. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I yeah. think you've nailed it in sort of saying there is, there's not really a black and white answer because everyone has a different philosophy on it. So you mentioned Situation Interactive. It's run by Damian Bazadona, who's a, just an incredibly smart individual. And he believes in digital being this specialty, something that you really focus on and you hone in on. And that's his philosophy. And it's really smart. And for some people, that works really well. Our philosophy at Sereno Coin is that we are neutral in many ways. We are a 360 agency that's doing everything in-house from all things digital, absolutely. But the things that Eric talked about and partnerships like I talked about and advertising that is that is a bit more traditional. And we actually believe in the opposite. We believe in neutrality. And the fact of the matter is, is that we need to have different philosophies like this mm-hmm. because this is a human business and humans should go where they feel like 
they belong, where they feel like their their philosophies are, where they feel like all of the things that they want to bring their show and brand to life are held by this set of guiding principles. How big is the company, first off? Uh, Sereno. We're just over 100 people. Wow. And then I I used to work at um, one of my first jobs in the city, uh, God, 11 years ago now, um, was uh, I was director of IT for a post-production company. And I would, and they handled TV spots, TV commercials, and I, Sereno Coin was one of the biggest clients, mm-hmm. or maybe still is. I have no idea. Um, but do you do you have your own production arm too? That you, you hire videographers and directors and editors, and do you? I guess first off, yes. Yes, yeah. yeah. First off is yeah. yes, and it's all done really differently. And I would say. Think about it not just in the broadcast sense, but broadcast and creative and and anything where we're creating a product, a piece, a piece of advertising, some of which is done completely in-house. We have a whole team of artists and videographers and editors that are brilliant artists in their own right that create all of that work here. And sometimes we collaborate with other people who don't work here, working with other people who bring a different perspective and working with them as well and still creative directing all of that work, but bringing in a voice and a perspective that's that's different. Well, let, let me just also jump in here to say one of the things that surprised me since I, I've been at Sereno is um, how people here uh, don't refer to themselves as filmmakers and novelists and because uh, because that that's what they are novelists um, yeah like the, writing the, stories writing stories and we're we're making films and we're we're uh, uh, des- we're we're so many more things than just what your your title is at at the end of the day there's a richness to uh, the the people who work here and I'm not even sure if they realize that but I think it took an outsider like me to come in and say no 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 you're you're not just a copywriter. You are a storyteller. You're a novelist. You 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 create worlds. You design adventure. I'm like there are so many ways to talk about what it is that you do that just isn't your title. And I'm hoping that people here understand that that's 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 who they are. I saw on the website there is a full time proofreader. Yeah. yeah, correct. Oh, right, he'll yeah. be so happy to hear. His, <laughs> so he, he never gets he, he he is, and you know what? He should he should get it right now. His name is Joe Figliola, and he's been here for. I mean, he'll correct me on the exact year, but he's been here for over two decades. Wow! And his job is to make sure that every single word is perfect, and every comma's in the right place, and every period's in the right place, and it is a thankless job in many ways. It's invisible labor in many ways. Oh, as but. a grammar Nazi, I <laughs> I applaud him. Like, the Oxford comma, we have mm. a hard relationship. Mm. Oh, yeah, well, tough. we could a whole yeah, other podcast about my relationship right with the Oxford yeah. comma, but kudos to to Joe, and I'm sure he'll give yeah. you um, a gold star for a shout-out on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, he w- he's yeah, a truly thankless job. I think yeah. there, there's so much here. But, um, like, Eric, I saw that you, you had a front-page New York New Yorker article about us. Was it New York Times or New Yorker? I forget. It was. About the, uh, Jordan Peele's new movie. Yes. Us. Yeah. I, it wasn't a front page. Uh, I wish it was on A1, but it is not. It wasn't on the front page of the paper, but it was on the front page of of, of the arts section yeah. about uh, us and its incorporation of Hands Across America into the film, which uh, I don't know if you remember Hands Across America, but I vividly remember uh, this event. And it, yeah, it was it was an article 
talking about how the 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 two sort of <laughs> play off of each other in the film. It was also on the homepage of the New York Times.com. Right, that's, so, that's what I meant. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. He's it was like, on the homepage. Yeah, he's much more humble than I am, but I'm his like unofficial unpaid that's publicist. True. And true. it was a big deal. I not, hung it not, up on our office door. Not marketer, a publicist. Right. <laughs> well, for only for Eric. Yeah. Only for Eric Greenberg. <laughs> I'll switch into the to the publicity side. And uh, was that like a freelance thing or or was the movie a client of Serena's and that's why you wrote it or how does that work? It's totally a freelance thing. I, I still have one one foot in in the journalism world. I'm I'm freelancing for the for the times here and there. I don't write about theater just because that would be a conflict of interest, mm-hmm. but I do write about film. I have a travel story uh coming up uh next month. So uh yeah, I I what I like about it, I still have have the freedom here to sort of you know, just just dabble in 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 journalism at the Times now and then. And you yeah. seem to be building a brand as well as a donut connoisseur. Oh, <laughs> bless your heart! Yes, uh, you donut own me is my Instagram. Uh, I'm obsessed with. I I could talk about donuts, eat donuts uh, every single day. I'm I'm up, truly obsessed. But I need more followers, so hopefully this will just result <laughs> in a groundswell of followers who are also as obsessed as I am. Where did this come from? Where did, what where where did you wake up one morning and you're like? I'm gonna be a donut review brand. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> called Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, in the Midwest, we like fried dough with sugar and glaze on it. Um, so yeah, my dad and I just uh, would go to Becker's, and they're gonna love the Becker's in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, for donuts after church uh, when I was a kid, and that just that seed was planted. And to this day, every time I go back home, that's. Before I even see my mother, I stop at Becker's for their maple glazed cream filled donuts, and that I I I I could eat that every day of my life. Well, at you donut own me. Yeah, we'll put that in the Thank show you. notes for everybody. Please yeah. do. Thank and you, Diana. We we said we get back to this the the activism and and uh, the feminism that you portray. Um, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that and what you're doing. Thank you, first of all. Um, I don't know that I could call it activism. I think a true activist would probably be wildly insulted by that. But I'm a believer, man. I mean, I just, I believe wholeheartedly in equality of the sexes, equality of all people, but for purposes of your question, equality of the sexes. And the fact is, in 2019, we don't have equality yet. There are so many things and reasons that are holding us back from being a completely equal world. And I would say that the United States is unfortunately behind so many other civilized nations in this world right now. And so it's important for me to start with my life. I think that's all anyone can do. And for me, after the 2016 election, seeing a very qualified woman not become president was really hard for me. I felt like, is there something in this world that women can't do? And The answer for me after the 2016 election was yes. And the other question I was asking myself a lot was, well, what can I do? What can I do? And I think when you really think about it, you affect change in your own life, and that affects change in the world. And so you try to lift other women up. There's this awful thought in the universe that women don't support other women, and that might have been true at some point. But I want to be part of a generation that turns that narrative around. And so at any point in time that I could support another woman, at any point in time that I could publicly make sure that she has a seat at the table, then then I'm going to do that. Because people did that for me, and that's the kind of world I want to live in. Does that that carry over into your day-to-day with your work and everything? It is 
ingrained in everything I'm feeling and thinking all day. And there are probably 50 other things every day that I could be doing better, that I could be doing more of, that I could be supporting women in a much more significant way. And all I want to do is figure out what those things are because I want all women to feel like they are worthy of sitting at the table, of their voices being heard, and that change is going to happen um, because it has. Our history has taught us that change has happened. Mm-hmm. And I think the future is going to look really, really bright for for women and equality of the sexes. Agreed. Yes, very well said. <laughs> the two of you are... I've I've encountered you professionally in a couple different things, and you're always, like, very chummy and very happy. Did you know each other before the last year and a half? (laughs) Nope. We never met. Never met. Nope. Really? Because you you seem like total besties. (laughs) All all the great stuff you post on Instagram, Eric, Uh is, like, taking photo credit Diana Solomon. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Like, all all those glistening donuts, that's that's usually Diana. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, We didn't know each other, but I can tell you, I mean, don't tell me if the answer is no on your side, but I liked Eric the instant I met Eric. And I think with my heart before I think with anything else. Um, he'll tell you that he's nodding along right now because sometimes that's actually a very bad thing. But in this case, I think it was a very good thing. But I thought he was awesome. And I wanted to get to know him more. And I we joke a lot. I try to call Eric my work husband, which he um, won't allow. Which <laughs> Actually, I can probably do whatever I want. You probably let me call you your work husband. You just wouldn't want to call me your work wife. Well, I I already have a work okay. wife okay. already. So okay. uh, now and forever, but I'm sure there's okay. there's another. I just feel like category. when you get a new job, you get a new work wife. But you know, Pat Healy from the New York Times, if you're listening to this, you're sort of the source of all of this tension. But that's fine. <laughs> Put that aside. And I think, listen, I think that's fun. I think we live in a culture where words like work wife and work husband, it feels really easy to label all of that because you have a really great time together. But I think what makes our relationship so successful on a professional level is that I think it started with an immense amount of respect for each other. Um, and I think er- I've always felt like Eric had that for me, and I certainly have that for for Eric. And when you respect other people and when you trust other people, it makes for a really, really great relationship on a personal and professional level. Well, uh, this is 2019. These are modern times, so I think we can dabble in work polygamy. <laughs> Everybody's Fair okay enough. with that. Consider enough. at this That's point, okay. I, I don't want to be his work wife, but in many ways, it feels. And I think that I think. Listen, I think gay men are some of the smartest people in the entire world because they had to create relationships for themselves. And to that end, I would probably call Eric my work partner. Before I'd call him anything else. I accept. It it feels much more like a partnership than it feels like an ownership. And if I'm your wife, it kind of means that you own me. (laughs) That ain't true. true. (laughs) That's not true. Donuts own you, and that's the only thing. Donuts do own me, yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's let's wrap up here. And there's the three standard questions, of course, that I ask everybody on the podcast. Number one, and we'll start with Eric. Uh, What motivates you? Oh, um, curiosity. I'm so. I call it nosy. I think Diana would say curious. I just want to know everything about everybody. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you like? What don't you like? What makes you mad? I just am so motivated to learn about people, especially those I disagree with. I want to know everything. That's good for advertising. Yeah. 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 Diana? I would say it's perspective. Similarly, I want to learn about perspectives that I never had before. I want to be immersed in perspectives that I don't normally have. And that makes me um, motivated and looking towards the future at all times. 
All right. So then, Diana, next question. Uh, it, what advice would you give to yourself or your younger self or younger people now listening, starting out down a similar path? I would say that if you feel like your voice is not represented, then create a new voice that has never been heard before. I felt many times growing up that there were lots of things that I didn't feel represented. My parents, I'm, I'm the daughter of, of immigrants. I'm a first-generation American. Um, I was the only one growing up, and I felt that that was weird. I wasn't as skinny as the other girls, and I felt like I didn't always see myself on stage or in stories, and seeing Hairspray at 16 years old blew my mind, and it, that voice didn't exist, and I wish I would have created it. Um, and I hope that other young people do that for themselves. Cool. Yeah, Eric? I would say uh, fail. I would say don't be afraid to try something, and if it doesn't work, try something else. I think everyone's so worried about what is my major going to be in college, and what is my first job going to be, and it has to be good, well-paying, and I have to love it. And sometimes you just have to try something, and it may turn out terribly, but you learn so much from that experience. That's fun. Okay, so, Eric, if you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what show would you see? I'd probably have to say Godspell, um, <laughs> just because I love the Jesus and the suspenders, and every single song just takes me back to listening to the 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 vinyl um, album with my headphones on and not knowing what 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 is what, there's a clown but he's Jesus and I, I don't know what's happening here but it just it just was one of those shows that continues to just <laughs> bring me joy um, I could listen to that show for the rest of my life every day Wow Diana um, sorry I'm a little bit in shock from that last <laughs> response so give me literally like prepare he only has like four Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Seven words over and over again. Yes. That's I, the show? I love it. No do-overs? No. Uh-uh. Okay. Well, That's it. Godspell. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> the first one to come to my mind is John Doyle's revival of The Color Purple, which I thought was the most stunning thing in the entire world. And seeing uh, that silly story being told on stage in such a specific and beautiful and spotlighted way. Um, I felt like her voice was heard. It was a voice I wanted to hear over and over again. And I could watch that every single day, all day, and do nothing else. Wow. So we can find you, Diana, on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Diana Salome. Was there another Diana Salome? There, there's a lot of Diana Salome's apparently on the internet. The period was gone. The, the underscore in the middle was gone. I... Really a, a tough day for me. A tough day for me. <laughs> okay. So at underscore Diana Salome, Eric, you are on Instagram, you.donut.own.me, and then on Twitter, Eric Peep at Eric Peepenberg. And uh, anything else, right? Is That's it, yeah? That's it. That's, that's it. it. Okay. Yeah, find me there. Cool. And you can get more of me at theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter, facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Please rate and review and share. I read the rating or I read the reviews. The ratings help. It's it it's great. Visit us online, thetheaterpodcast.com. You can email me feedback at thetheaterpodcast.com. This is produced by Jillian Hockman. And as always, thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. Eric, Diana, Diana, Eric. Thank you both for being on the podcast. This has been so much fun. Thanks, Alan. It's been a hoot. A hoot? A hoot. <laughs> Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 